Um, several years ago, there was a, uh, a Filipino fisherman who got his anchor stuck off the coast of the Palawan Islands, and he swam down to get his anchor unhooked and found a rather large clam. And in the mouth of this clam was this, and it may look really strange to look at, but this is a 75-pound pearl in the mouth of a clam, okay? Now, 75 feet, two feet long, one foot wide, pearl. That's awesome, but what's even more awesome is the dude swims to his, gets it to his boat and then hides it under his bed for 10 years. And then the only reason it came out from under his bed was because he asked his friend to hold it while he moved. And then someone goes, this is probably worth a lot of money. And he was like, I don't know. Guess how much? Estimated worth, $130 million. Right? Like how many of us would love to stumble upon that kind of treasure, right? It's why we go to Goodwill, isn't it? It's why we look at the book, we open like, we find a leather-bound book and we're like, ooh, this looks nice. I wonder if the Constitution is in here. It's why we look at a painting and we actually are like looking behind paintings, right? It's why we do this thing. We would love to stumble upon a treasure of ultimate worth. Well, Matthew 13, Jesus goes into heavy parable mode. He actually begins to tell stories that cause a lot of head scratching if you read through these parables. He tells stories of farmers throwing seed. He tells stories of wheat and weeds and mustard seeds and yeast and fishing nets. And then we read, tucked in the middle of this chapter, verse 44 of Matthew 13. So this man is going on a journey and he stumbles upon treasure buried in a field. Hmm. Sets it before him. Oh, my. Get one more look at that. Huh? Like it's kind of blinding and what? So the story goes, he takes the treasure that he found, buries it back under the ground, runs to the person who owns the field, sells everything he has, and purchases the field that the treasure is in. I mean, it's one or two simple sentences but Jesus is describing the kingdom. You can read it, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Now, 
Before you start rambling on and on about missing the point and debating the ethical question of not telling the person who owned the field that there happens to be the most valuable treasure the guy has ever seen, before you go rambling on about whether or not we should imitate his ethical decision, please don't miss the point. But there will be some of you also who might miss the point in saying, well, this guy, is he buying his salvation? Is he, buying, is he, is he paying for, for salvation? Again, adventures in missing the point, but still head scratching nonetheless. Okay? We often get distracted discussing and debating side points and missing, missing the stumbled upon treasure that Jesus has revealed. Jesus is declaring the kingdom of God is of ultimate value. And if you're debating whether or not you should do what he did, or is it buying salvation, or is it earning, no, that, that would contradict Jesus' teachings. So we take the whole, and Jesus is announcing there is something of ultimate value. But at the same time, not only is he announcing something of ultimate value, he's saying, will you give up everything to have that thing of ultimate value? Will you, when you stumble upon it, lay down everything you once thought valuable for this treasure that has been stumbled upon? The kingdom offers us and opens us up to a world of beauty and healing and freedom and wholeness and restoration and God being with his people. And this man stumbled upon this treasure so wonderful, it was worth giving up everything for. Now, just because you weren't looking for something doesn't mean it won't become something you'll give up everything for. Jesus introduced people to treasure. What does this kingdom come with? We learn that Jesus isn't offering a map to treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And as we walk through this series and as we continue looking at some of these very familiar ideas and concepts that can become routine and rote in a Christ follower's journey, and, and I'm, my prayer has been that God would wake up our dead hearts. Because when we see the jewels that are found in Christ, the riches in Christ, like when we talk about Jesus, is it like, well, he forgave my sin. Do you say it in that way or do you like, dude, forgave my sin. Like, I ain't got no chance without this man doing what he did on the cross. You got to know, like this, again, this is not just amazing grace, how sweet. It sounds like a dirge when we sing that, you know? And, and maybe it was meant to be, but there's, so, I, I don't, but there's something that comes out of a life that understands these treasures in Christ. There's a difference between those who just attend something and those who recognize Christ as treasure. Paul said it these way, this way to the Ephesians. And these were people outside of, the, of being insiders. They were left out in some respects and they were people who were on their own. They were enemies to God because of their thoughts and actions. And Paul says this, he says, though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously the privilege of telling the Gentiles 
about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you hear that? He's given us, A, the treasures in Christ, but he tells us why. So that we will put on display his wisdom and not ours to a watching world who's wondering what is the deal with Jesus. And so he continues these, this imagery all throughout. And I know there are times that I have actually come to church as a museum patron. And do you know what I mean by that? It's like a museum is supposed to be full of artworks that are valuable because someone says they are, right? Like you walk into a museum and you're like, ooh, that's really valuable. You tilt your head, you look at it. You, you might, there might be a little, little card that has some information about the piece of artwork. And then at the bottom, it tells you it's worth a million dollars. And you're like, wow, that's really nice. And then you do the museum walk. I don't know why. I don't know why we do this at a museum, but we do. We just, I don't know many of you walk around like this, but at a museum, it's really cool to do. Like, hmm, 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 says the guy who just posted a video of a cat running through a wall. Like that's, I mean, it's, we're, we're so civilized when we go to a, a, a museum. But truly, a museum is us seeing something that someone said is valuable and then moving on to something else that someone else says is valuable. Here's the deal. In the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us of treasure in Christ. And his intention is not to just tell you about it. His intention is to share it with you. There is a difference between being a museum patron and one who's looking at this and going, this is being offered to me. This treasure is being made known to me. This is for me to possess, to hold on to. It's mine. That's way better than going and observing something valuable to someone else. My prayer this morning is that you may have come here for one reason, but that you will walk out having stumbled onto something so great that it's worth giving everything up for. That's my prayer. And if you're like, well, I'm not going back because I don't want to see anything value giving up anything. I'm not going back. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I want you to know how I'm praying. I want you to know that I'm praying that as a people, we will stumble upon something so great that it's worth giving up everything for. As we continue through this series, we will look at forgiveness. We will look at acceptance. We will look at God's presence. We will look at his empowerment. What does it really mean? What does it mean to be empowered? What does freedom mean? And what does wholeness look like? And why are these such jewels in this treasure of a kingdom? Listen again. They shape our lives, but they also tell our story. Verse 10 of Ephesians 3. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. One of the surest treasures God puts on display through his people is the gift of forgiveness. I, I do agree that it will probably be the one thing we all bring up, rightly so, if we were asked about the treasures of Christ. Because it's the one we've probably been taught most about. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. We've said it so much that it actually can become rote in our own lives. And that's a very dangerous thing. And we'll see why in just a moment. The words, I forgive you, are some of the most powerful, if not the most powerful words a human heart can hear. Now, if they are powerful between humans, imagine how much greater and how much more powerful the words I forgive you coming from creator to creature. But I know we have a problem because I know forgiveness and I forgive you only sounds good to those who know they need to be forgiven. There are some of us who are too proud and too arrogant and too stony hearted to even see the errors of our ways. In fact, forgiveness is for everyone else, but never for me. In fact, if I offend somebody, I say I'm sorry that they don't understand why I did what I did. That's how arrogant we are. And that's how manipulative we can be when we don't see our need for forgiveness. Luke's letter in the New Testament was written so that a man named Theophilus would be able to remain certain of the truth he was taught about Jesus. Luke was a physician. He loved details. And Luke's gospel is full of them. It is not the ESPN ticker gospel. It is full of the, what about this? And how did that, you get all those details and it's great. In Luke chapter seven, he writes this account for us to hear. Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. So, elephant in the room, immoral woman. Okay? Problems here. This is awkward. Um, and we aren't sure what this woman was known for, but we do know she had a rep, and it wasn't a good one. It wasn't one you would be glad about. It wasn't a reputation that you'd be like, yeah, that's me. No. This woman had a reputation in the city, and it wasn't good. Now, that word immoral probably does mean that it was a life marked by sexual sin that is outside of God's standards, and because that's what immorality means. Immorality means behavior that is contrary to the will of God for his people. That's what it means. And in the greater scope through the Old Testament and the New Testament, immorality can be connected to idolatry, which is saying, I love this way more. And I give my whole heart and affections to this thing way more than I was giving it to God. And it can also mean unfaithfulness to God. So there's a bigger picture here with this word immoral. 
See, you and I were made with a purpose in mind. And I know this flies in the face of American individualism like crazy. Like to know that God made you and me with a purpose in mind, we don't like that. We don't. But let me tell you a little bit about the purpose in mind that God had for his creation. His great, all-consuming purpose is to walk with God. Did you know what was included in walking with God? Known by him, to know him, hearing his voice, living in relationship with him, ultimately reflecting him too. Like, this is how he made us. He made us for these things. He made us to know all of our needs met there in him. Safety, identity, security, provision. That sounds like a terrible purpose if you ask me. No, it's, it's what we were made for. It's why we long for things to be perfect. Do you know that? Like, we long for things to be perfect, but we struggle with when it's not. Well, it's because we were made for this perfect relationship. We were made to walk in it. We were made to reflect and We were made to express all of his qualities and characteristics to each other in the presence of the one who made us. But see, what had happened was we said no. We said no. So Adam and Eve, as our first parents, rather than being okay with being near God, said, we'd rather be God. We would rather be the supplier of all the things that we need. We would rather be responsible for all the decision-making. We would rather be the ones who call the shots. We would rather run the show. And this is the life that you and I have inherited from our first parents, this alternative life disregarding his will, disregarding his ways and his purposes. And this doesn't just show up in our outward actions. This actually shows up in the posture of our hearts. This is where we stand inwardly, not just outwardly. And it affects every inch of us. Jeremiah chapter two, God gives a great simple picture for what his people were actually doing. Jeremiah 2 says, has any nation, talking of the nation of Israel, has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they're not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Like this is the shock of God. Like he's, I don't get it either. Your guess is as good as mine. They gave me up for things that they made with their own hands and then they bowed back down to those things. That doesn't make any sense. Why would they do this? Has any, this is a shock to the heavens. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done, okay, here's the problem we have right here. He says they are two evil things. We have done. They have abandoned me, 
the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. These two things God calls evil. To abandon the creator and then to go look for other things to fill the role of what God has done and who he is and how he made us. Like we wouldn't call that evil. We'd be like, well, we're just misguided. We're misled. I don't know. We made a mistake. We made a oops. No, in the, in the sight of heaven, they're like, are you serious? You traded the God of all creation for worthless things. Heaven is shocked and dismayed by this. Going, God, do they have any clue what they've done? Thankfully, the scriptures teach us that humanity has a default position that is a broken position. And I know that we don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear that sin is the problem. It's why the scripture has to declare it so loudly because we'll ignore sin. We'll say, well, it's just a knowledge problem. If I knew more, I probably would be a better person. Or it's a circumstantial problem. Well, the circumstances around me weren't great, so that's why I did the thing I did. Or it's the, cult the culture I grew up in. Well, I grew up in the culture that talked about this, so then it's that. That's why I have this problem. No, the scriptures declare that humanity has a sin issue. We have abandoned the living God and we have pursued broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And it causes all of heaven to go, you guys have no clue what you're doing. Why would you do this? So we have a woman walking in around Pharisees and Jesus, who has lived a life marked by this. And it was clearly marked by this because they knew her rep was not good. But her response to Jesus was not to run from him, it was actually to run to him, which is quite baffling if sin is our problem. Verse 38 continues, then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, he says this quietly to himself. Or he may have leaned over and been like, hey, yeah, other Pharisee, you know what I'm saying? This woman's a problem. And Jesus, he's not very smart. But he takes note. Not only did she break up this party, but I think things got even more undignified. I don't know that she came into that room with plans to weep on Jesus' feet. I don't think she thought, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go embarrass myself. That's what's happening. I'm going to go make a fool of myself right now. No. She came in. 
She brought the perfume and chances are it was, I'm gonna put the perfume on his feet. I'm gonna say thank you. But what happens when you've experienced something so big is your face just stops hiding it. You know, it's like, this is when ugly cry stuff starts happening and your face gets scrunchy and it's not Instagrammable. It's not, no amount of Instagram filters over your face can cover the weeping that comes when a heart has been impacted. You just can't hide that. And so she's sitting at Jesus's feet, just boo-hooing. We're not, <laughs> no, we're talking, oh my, I mean like everything, not reserved, not holding it back, not doing that weird thing with her face. And, you know, and we like get real tense to try and shut it down. And we, we do because we all do those things. We don't want to be undignified in public. We want to be respectable. This woman comes and says, it's over. Like I'm in his presence. I'm, in, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus and man, I can't stop my face holes from water coming out. And, and it ends up being so much that she begins to wash his feet with her tears. Something treasured this woman had stumbled upon. And we learn more as we continue. Verse 40 says, then Jesus answered Simon's thoughts, which if I'm Simon, I'm going, that's strange. I don't think I said that out loud. But Jesus answers his thoughts. I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. You and I are beginning to get a clearer picture of what is going on in this moment. Jesus knows what's happened in this woman's life. Jesus knows that it has everything to do with forgiveness. Jesus uses a picture that compares someone borrowing four months of salary to someone who borrows two weeks of salary, both of which could not be repaid. Neither of them could pay back what they had borrowed. And to their great surprise, the man cancels both of their debts. Now, how many of you in this room have a monthly payment that is reoccurring? Just raise your hand if you do. Just raise it high. We all, we, raise, if you have a monthly payment reoccurring. It's just a, you're not a terrible person for raising your hand. It's okay. Good. All right. Cool. Now, I want you to think of the most expensive one that you have right now. The one that feels like I am never going to get this thing paid off. Like that one. That's the one. Okay? And I want you to imagine hearing the words from the one who holds your loan. I forgive your debt. Give me a response. We are so introvert, 
quiet, respectable Americans. I, I get it. I understand. I get it. But you and I both know that that would not be our response inwardly. You and I both know that there is a, do you remember the Six Flags guy who danced around like, that would be our inward person at this moment. And you know what would be happening at this moment is that something would be swelling in us. It would be that warm feeling you get sometimes. It would be love. Like we begin to go, I love you, man. Like if a person standing outside my door says, your house debt is paid in full. Things will get awkward with this dude. I'm telling you. I'd grab him. I'd pick him up. I'd be like, thank you. I love you, man. I would have crossed all the boundaries, probably possible that you could in this moment. Jesus's words are not far-fetched when he says, Those who are forgiven much, love much. It's a result. It happens. There's something in us that when we know our debts are forgiven, our love swells. Luke 7, 44 says this. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, had this woman turned from the living water and chosen to dig cisterns that can't hold any water? Yes. Maybe it was ignorance. Maybe she did it on purpose. We don't really know. Had the woman lived without God, rejecting his ways for his people? Yes. But I want you to know, according to this story, Simon was also in danger as well. Simon had failed to show the most common of courtesies to guests in his own home, which was a good indicator that his position was one of arrogance and pride. And he showed that that he wasn't possibly listening to the words of the living God, but had made it about position and power and authority And his love was non-existent. See, I'll I'll never forget, there was a time um, when we were in, when I was living in Nashville as a youth pastor there, and we did a, um, uh, uh, just our last session was on the Lord's Supper and communion. And we told the kids, and we said basically that 
we knew that there was some stuff going on in the student ministry. We knew that there were kids, pit against kids, and there was, um, you know, the, the whole click thing and the whole insult thing. And so we had said, look, before you come to this table, you're to go make it right. Don't you dare come to this table without making things right with the people in this room. And it got really quiet and really awkward. But we just said, don't, don't do it. These words are really important and you go. You don't come to this table until those relationships are made right. And then God started to do something that was pretty crazy. And it was like kids were getting up and they were dealing with some of the stuff that they had been holding against each other. And this is students, because I know as adults, we never do this, right? We would, we would, never, we would never do that, right? The students would get up and they would go across the room. And I knew all the drama because I was told how terrible of a guy I was because I was letting it go on. I'm like, I can't control these people. I can control what they hold grudges to and against. I can't do that. So we just said, Lord, you take care of it. And as they began to get up and go, what happened was the atmosphere of the grown high school athletes weeping hugging each other going, I'm sorry, I love you, I forgive you. Like their love for each other began to swell in the moments that they said the words, I forgive you. They heard the words, I forgive you. Something happened in them at those three simple words. The scripture does teach that humanity in its default position is sinful and broken. But oh, the scriptures teach from cover to cover of the eagerness of God to forgive sin. I know we stop when we hear, oh, that book says, suggests that I'm sinful. And we miss that from cover to cover is the eagerness of God to say, I... Do please know the forgiveness of sin, whether it's in Leviticus three and four, when God is saying, here's how the peace offering works between me and my people. Here's how the sin offering works between me and my people. Here is how God is saying, please stop running, put down your idols and return to me. Isaiah chapter one, listen to the Lord's request. He says, come now, let's settle this says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. The eagerness of God to forgive sin is cover to cover. But do we understand our desperate need for it? Simon had a problem. This Pharisee should have known, but somehow he had missed it and his love was muted or non-existent. Simon probably was at a point in his life where he even doubted that he needed forgiveness. And here's where I'm gonna be really honest with you. Chances are, if Simon spends his time looking at the immoral woman, he probably doesn't, right? Like if Simon just spends his time comparing himself to sinners, does he probably see his need for forgiveness? Absolutely not. But when you look down on folks, 
Your love will grow stale. But when you look up at Jesus, your love will swell. When you compare yourself to sinful people, you can make yourself feel better about what you've done and who you are all day long. But when you look at the holy God of all creation, you can't help but in the words of Isaiah say, I'm done. I have no leg to stand on. Maybe we suspect that this woman who shows up at this meal had heard Jesus somewhere else. She didn't just come with a thing of perfume by accident showing up. She came prepared to pour out this perfume. Maybe she had heard Jesus speak about um, Matthew and his tax collectors and reputable sinners hanging out. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I wonder if she was like, I know. I know. I know. So, I mean, for me, right? I, I know. Maybe she saw the paralyzed man on the mat who needed a physical healing that the, the, the friends dropped him down through the roof. You remember that? He's laying there paralyzed before Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does is look at this young man and say, your sins are forgiven. Maybe she was like, I'll, I need somebody to lower me on a mat before Jesus because I need to hear those words spoken over my life. I don't really need a physical healing, but I need to hear you are forgiven. So I need four friends. Would you lower me through a roof? Because I need to hear those words spoken over my life. At this point in Jesus' ministry, maybe she was truly understanding what the psalmist said in Psalm 103. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And if you're fascinated by the expanding universe, which I, I am, that means east is actually getting farther from west. So the gap between who we are and who we were is even farther. Like this is the stuff that causes a human heart to go, I don't care. I can love you and I can forgive you because I know the creator has taken my sin as far as the east is from the west. Like, we're not the same. I'm not the same. God's grace truly has covered me in forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all Wickedness, Christian treasure on display as the church, we are forgiven people. I know that there's a popular phrase in the world and I, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having this conversation with people in Asheville. What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of life? Be a good person, be a good person, be a good person. What if the purpose of life is not just being a good person, but it's being forgiven and knowing what reconciliation between you and the living God really could look like? Maybe that's the purpose, is to know reconciliation with our creator. And I want you to know that it's not because we pour out jars of perfume on Jesus's feet that we are saved. Luke seven fifty, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He didn't say, well, 
You poured out enough perfume, I forgive you. He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we close this morning, Nate, you you and the team can come. The Christian treasure of forgiveness is not earned. It is gifted to us by a gracious God. Strong God gifting weak people with what we need the most. And I want you to know that this forgiveness is not just so that we can walk around with our heads high. Yes, there is a dignity. There is a, there is a, I am new. I've been made whole. That we're not, the point is not to walk around with your head held high. The point is to lift Jesus high. The point is to go, look what he's done, not look what I have now. It's look what he's done. So yes, there is a lifting, but it is not me. It is Jesus that I am lifting high because of the forgiveness that I have found. The treasure of the kingdom of heaven includes the jewel of forgiveness. The door, the entrance, the right relationship with God being reconciled. Forgiveness is a treasure to us because if Jesus is correct, forgiven people love well. We have all the fuel we will need to love extravagantly knowing we have been forgiven much. So the question is, if the church isn't loving much, Is she in Simon's shoes? Or is she in the shoes of the woman? Jesus says our love problem is directly connected to a forgiveness problem. When we know we've been forgiven much, the result is much love. Secondly, a forgiven people walk in peace. Maybe today, the anxiety that you cannot get off your chest isn't related to money. It's not related to jobs. It's not related to education questions. Maybe it's not, it's not related to family situations. Maybe it's not related to any of those stressors. Maybe it's related to this jewel, this forgiveness. Maybe it's about forgiveness between you and God, but also forgiveness between you and a brother or sister. And you've just kind of masked it and covered it with all the other things that come with this world. But if the scriptures are true, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to forgive us all our sin. Grace and peace go together. Cannot have peace without experiencing the grace of God and the jewel of forgiveness floods right in, creating a peace, not just an absence of conflict, but a wholeness, to know that my heart has been forgiven, my outer actions forgiven, and I stand in right relationship with God. Have you seen the forgiveness of God in the face of Christ? Is your love stale? Is your love cold? Have you seen much forgiveness Or are you in the shoes of Simon? Do you continue to look down on others because you refuse to really look up at Jesus and his cross? Look to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. And like the psalmist, say, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight.
This is what we remember as we go to the corners of the room and we take communion together. We take this bread and we take this juice, remembering the jewel of forgiveness. We remember that it's because of his body and his blood that he made a way for us to be forgiven of all our immorality, all of our idolatry, all of our unfaithfulness to him, all of our worshiping the things and the ways of this world. It's all been set as far as from the east is to the west, and it's by faith in what Christ has done. And if you in this room would say, I believe that to be true, then this meal is for you. Go to the, one of the corners of the room, take the bread, dip it in the juice, remembering that Christ sealed this for us. Forgiveness handed in place of judgment. Father, I ask that in these moments as we consider forgiveness, that Lord, we would not be, be so baffled by the fact that somebody owed more than somebody else, but we would be baffled that you forgave both debts. Lord, in both situations, we were unable to pay. And to each of us, our debts forgiven. It's joy inducing. It causes us to love more. It causes us to love well in the church. It causes us to, it's the fuel for everything. If Jesus is saying, those who are forgiven much, love much, the church should be the picture of Christ's ultimate love and sacrifice. Don't let us forget the treasure, the kingdom of heaven, and the jewel of forgiveness. It's in your name we pray.